The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It's man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. All right, it's a Thursday PFT PM podcast, and we had a change of plans today, folks. I have bad news for you, but it's not the bad news you're bracing for because I finally have delivered with a guest that you have been demanding. The problem is Chris Sims and I spoke for a full hour. So for today, there's really nothing else I'm going to add to what's already out there. I may have some thoughts tomorrow on the Matt Patricia situation once it ruminates and percolates for another day. But we've written about it. We've talked about it this morning on PFT Live. I think the best thing to do in order to keep this manageable today is to simply play what ended up being an interview that lasted longer than an hour. So this is it. One topic only, one interview only, a conversation with the guy that you have been demanding, my PFT Live co-host, Chris Sims. Okay, PFT PM Posse, you have asked for it, and now you are getting it. You may regret it. Who knows? I told him before we started, look, the bar is higher to get fired based upon what we say during the PFT PM podcast, but I'm sure there's still something that can be said that will get us fired. The good news is it's taped, so if... If either of us think we've gone too far, then we can always go back and, you know, clip out the thing that would have gotten us fired. So Chris That's right. Sims. That's the best thing about the podcast. You can always go back and cut out those kind of things. But uh, hey, wait, 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 good wait, to be able wait. to just free and talk to you and say bad words. And, uh, hey, you know what I've been wanting to say to you, actually? What? Fuck you. <laughs> that's, how about that? that's what I've been wanting to say. So, hello. Good afternoon, Mr. Florio. Well, that's a hell of an opener. Have you ever had to go back? Hey, have you ever had, like, your producer, when you do your Bleacher Report podcast, have they ever come in and said, uh, uh, hey, Chris, uh, hey, Chris and, and the other guy, I can't remember the other guy's name, hey, guys, we need to go back and, and, uh, and fix something because if we publish this, uh, people are going to lose their jobs. Uh, yes, definitely. There's been many instances of that. You know, uh, as you know, I tote the line as is anyways. And then Bleacher Report, yes, there's less of a muzzle on me there when I do the podcast. They are unbelievable as far as the quality control that we have there at Bleacher Report. They're almost too picky, as in, you know, when, I, when, I, when we do the show and I call a player a freak of nature and then I say what? Oh, I only mean that. I only mean that in the most respectful way possible. What <laughs> because, the hell is that? Because at first, Bleacher Report would get on me saying some people might find that offensive that you're calling these players freak of nature. So that's where that started from. Them being so careful and so scared, I started saying respectfully after he's a freak of nature. Yeah, that that's a little much. I'm surprised they even allow you to do a podcast if they're worried about that. I, I know, right? And we do have a swear meter. Like, we, we swear on our podcast, too. They have reined me in a little bit as of late because they started keeping track. And, you know, one day they asked me, they're like, you know, do you know, do you know how many swears you said yesterday? I was like, man, I think I was pretty good. I'm going to say I said, like, six, and my, my co-host, Adam Lefko, said two or three. And they were like, well, you were right about Lefko. He said two or three, but you said 27 curse words. And I was like, wow. And that's when I realized I had to dial it back a little bit. So what are you down to, 28? <laughs> I'm down to like four or five an episode now. <laughs> Did you say earlier that you toked the line? Is that what you said? I toke, yeah, toke the line. Toke the line? Is that what oh, you said? I do, I do toke the line. Well, I don't, <laughs> I, I toke something else. I don't toke lines, but I toke something else, yes. Yeah, it's amazing how, I, and it's, I, you have, you have no qualms about it. I mean, we've, right, and I see stats squirm every time the topic comes up, but We'll make reference to the fact that from time to time you you will fire up a daddy cigar and, yeah. uh, you know, so be yes. it. Yes, that's what I do. I mean, yeah, I, I don't hide it. Uh, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm, uh, I think if anybody knows me, I'm, my, my life is 
uh, pretty together. I'm hard worker. I'm responsible for a lot of things. And yeah, on a Friday night, uh, like most people, they come home, they might have a drink, a glass of wine, whatever it is. I've never agreed with liquor. Yeah, I'm going to roll up a fatty and smoke one. That's just what I do. And uh, I don't care if people want to judge me, certainly go ahead. Um, but I just think we're at the day and age where, come on, I mean, it's, it's so arbitrary, right? I mean, what's, what's the big deal? And you can't sit here and argue to me that alcohol is better for you. Uh, I know it's legal and, and, and marijuana is illegal federally, but I mean, the, the, the bad, bad results that alcohol can give you are way outnumber what, what marijuana does to you. So yeah, I am an advocate of it being, um, you know, something that anybody can do and the, and the people, they stop policing it all over the country. Well, it's now legal in nine states recreationally, Chris. 29, I think, is the current number for medicinal use. And, and you're right. I mean, between opioids and alcohol and, and all the stuff that strong prescription medications can do, it, it makes sense that people wake up to the reality that that it's not nearly... I mean, it smells bad, right? And, 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 I think it smells delicious. And, and Well, but it's just got that, oh, my God, oh, who, who lit the skunk on fire, right? But, uh, well, yes, I mean, it definitely has a pungent smell. i got to make sure that it's kept in a safe place in the house and, of course, away from my children and all those type of things. But, yeah, I mean... I don't know about you, but I can re- I can say honestly, like the five dumbest things I ever did in my life were under the influence of alcohol. Uh, I mean, you just talk about drunk drivers. The number one causer of heart disease is alcohol. So all those things are certainly, uh, you know, bad things that that can do. I'm not I'm not advocating marijuana smoking. I understand it's not perfect for you either, but I'm just saying if alcohol is legal, then marijuana should be legal as well. I'm going to ask you some questions from time to time that were posed by members of the audience who enjoy this show. They're known as the PFTPM Posse. And the first one I'm looking at right now, it comes via That Devil is Mine. How many coaches, execs are you aware of that enjoy the devil's lettuce? No names, obviously, unless they wouldn't mind. Yes, certainly. I will not use any names, but I do. It's a it's a bigger number than I think people would realize. You know, coaches in in general, um, you know, they work hard and they play hard. And and I, you know, as you know, it's a tough job in the NFL. Coaching is long hours. You know, it's of course high pressure. If you don't do well, it's a results business. You're going to have to move. You're going to get fired to climb the ladder. You got to move. And a lot of these guys do. They, you know, I think more coaches than people realize drink a little bit more than they would think maybe pop pills and even smoke some of the green lettuce uh but there's certainly a a handful of coaches that that mess with uh you know some marijuana from time to time well look and i think of the players that use it and the same reason i think players would use it i think coaches would use it from the standpoint of managing the stress of having to walk out into an arena with 70,000 people, especially on the road, when 95% of them hate you and are yelling at you, I'm sure that at some level that helps deal with those emotions that you have to process once a week for 17 weeks, 16 weeks, whatever the case may be of a football season. Yes, without a doubt. Yeah, all those things. And I can even speak to my experience when I worked up in New England. You know, up in New England, of course, uh, I was the self-proclaimed bitch boy, right? Basically, I mean, whatever they thought uh, needed to be do, done as far as dirty work within the organization, that's what I did. And, you know, I, I found myself, yes, I was working over 100 hours a week, and I'd get home at my house at like 1130 at night, and I'd go, damn, i got to get up at like 5 a.m. or 445 here, and my brain is still going. I'm still punching in numbers about, you know, breaking down a team for the next week's opponent, and I I can't shut it off, and that was one area where I found that marijuana was very useful to me going forward. It just allowed me to kind of turn off my brain. I could go to sleep and then wake up the next day, feel fresh, and do it all over again. What made you decide that you didn't want to continue on the on the team side as a front office employee or as, as somebody who was learning the ropes in coaching? I think the, the biggest thing is just the time away from my family. Um, that's where I really, it just ate away at me. Uh, I know you value that as well with, with your, you know, your son and your wife. But, yeah, I, um, 
I, as the season went on, I just could not stomach the fact that at the time, I think my little girl was eight years old and my little boy was four. I was going, man, I'm going like, you know, a week without seeing my kids. And when I see them, I'm seeing them like right before they go to bed just for like a half hour. And then I'm going another week without seeing them again. And uh, that was really bothering me. I got offered another job by another team and I came home to my wife and I said, you know, Bob team asked me if I'd be interested in maybe going down to be a quarterback coach. And she's like, what? We're going to move again? She's like, I don't know if I, we signed up for this. And I was like, you know what? I'm not sure if I signed up for this either. I don't know if I, I want to do this going forward. And that's when I reevaluated it and got into the media business. I think it would be harder too, Chris, getting into the coaching slash team side of things after a playing career because you're – you know, typically what happens, you've got these guys who didn't play pro football, they were graduate assistants, they jump to a team, they're unmarried, and they're capable of grind, 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 do all the crazy stuff, and you, you make your bones that way. Not that it gets any easier as you progress, but at least you can start up that path at right. a time when you're young enough where you're not feeling guilty because your kids are growing up and you're not there to see it. You just you either don't have kids, you don't, you aren't married, and, and it's just yes. you, and you can establish your footing that way. I think it makes it harder for a former player who was in the league six, seven, eight years to get started then because it's better to start a job like that when you're 22, 23, 24. No, no doubt about it. Yes, most of the guys that are are in the business, you're right. They have no, nobody at home. I mean, maybe a girlfriend. A lot of times, they don't even have that to start out their young careers because you don't have time for any of that. Uh, it's certainly uh, something that I can just the guys I sat next to up in New England. None of them, you know, a few girlfriends, but nobody was married. Nobody had kids. Uh, yes, there was parts of me where I would look over at times and be like, damn. You know, what I'm doing is beneath me as far as my football knowledge. I'm sitting next to here some guy who's, you know, just learning uh, football in general. He's like in the football 101 class, and I'm sitting next to him doing the same type of work. So that was the thing I also respected about New England. They made you start from the bottom. But I'll say this too, Mike, and I don't think you and I have ever talked about this. It was an eye-opening experience because – for me, this is one of the big reasons we don't have a lot of African-American uh, NFL coaches coming up the pipeline. Uh, and one of the reasons I look at it is, of course, coaching has become very political. And a lot of the times, the guys, the young kids that are in the front office or the scouting department, how do they, how do they get in there? They get in there through connections. Who, you know, who, who do you know? Oh, my dad's you know, the doctor for Bill Belichick, or my dad's the owner's, uh, the owner's lawyer, whatever it may be. And not only do you have to have connections to get in, but the other thing is you get paid nothing. It's, I got paid less than minimum wage my year and a half in New England, basically. It was less than minimum wage. So if I didn't have money or come from money and have some saved up in the bank, you really can barely survive a normal life, just groceries and some rent with the amount that they pay you in those low-level jobs in the NFL. Well, and you know what? That's a great point because you look at all the owners who are white, and for years most of the coaches were white, and they still right. are. And and a lot of the time is, you know, you've got a connection to a coach with one team, yeah. and you, you trade favors that way. You don't hire yeah. your son. Your son goes to work for your buddy, and then you hire your buddy's son, and it all kind of cross-pollinates that way. And I, right. I, hadn't, I hadn't thought of that, but, I mean, obviously – one of the reasons that there aren't more African-American head coaches is there aren't more African-American offensive coordinators. That's the key. And yep. if there just aren't as many African-American lower-level potential coaches who are working their way up, I guess it's just a numbers game, plain and simple. Yeah, exactly right. I think that's uh, that pretty much encapsulates it all. But that was one thing that I looked at, and I got on the media side. And, of course, then we, you know, that topic came up a few times. That was a little eye-opening. I went, yeah. You know, it, it's hard. It's going to be hard from anybody that comes from, you know, uh, any, you know, what do I want to say? Just low income household, basically. Anybody. I don't care white, well, look, black, I, I couldn't have done uh, it. whatever there's, it may be. It's hey, just Chris, a hard business to break into. And then once you get in there and those low level jobs, it's very hard to survive with the uh, little amount of money you're making. 1987, there's no way in hell I could have done it. I, well, I went to law school and, and I mean, I, and if I hadn't had a full scholarship, I wouldn't have been able to pull that off. But at, at that age, there is no way in hell that I would yeah. have been able to do anything that didn't pay a fairly substantial amount of money because I had 
debt to pay off and I didn't have any, I didn't have, I couldn't say, Hey mom, dad, can you support me while I do this? It it would have been impossible. And if you're working a hundred hours a week, it's not like you have time to take a second job. So I think it does freeze out a lot of people who can't just put their life on hold while they, they start this process of, of proving that they love it. I think that's what it's all about. They beat the hell out of you. They wear you down. They work you a hundred hours plus per week because that's your way of demonstrating how much you care about what it is that you do. Yes, that is a definite a good point. Yes, they want to see it. It's a, it's a, it's a, you know, last man standing type of game. It really is. You put in your work in the NFL, you're diligent, you're a good employee, good soldier on a day-to-day basis. At some point in time, you're going to continue to climb that ladder. It might take longer than you'd like. I mean, I sat there in the front office in New England with guys like, you know, Bob Quinn and John Robinson, who's the GM of the Titans and the Lions. And, yeah, they put in that time. They were in that office for a long, long time on a daily basis, sometimes in the office going, you know what, I don't have any work to do, but the head coach is still there downstairs in the office, and I'm just going to sit here until he leaves because in case he comes up and wants something done, I don't want to be not here in my office, and uh, that's a big part of it too is just standing there being ready in case something happens, and uh, yeah, you can waste your life away, but but at the end of the day, it, it will pay off if you hang in there. Well, that's how you get the attention of the head coach. If you get there before he shows up and if you stay until after he leaves if you're the last person hanging around and he does need something because he doesn't know how to use the damn copier because he's never made any copies or at least he hasn't (laughs) since they invented real copy machines he was back in the days of the mimeograph but uh, yeah I mean that's your opportunity and that's what it's being in the right place at the right time and doing the right thing when you're given that one opportunity to do it and you 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 know it's it's and there's a certain arbitrary quality to it but if you're not in position to have that that lightning hit the milk bottle. If the milk bottle's out, not out in the street, you're not going to be there when the chance comes to impress the coach. Yeah, exactly right. It is. It, it, it can be torture. It's a tough life. Uh, but, you know, everybody's in it to, to get that big payoff, whether that's a GM, pro personnel, job head coach, offensive coordinator. Once you start to get up to those job titles, of course, you make a lot of money. It starts to seem worth it. And really, you don't have to do the little things on a day-to-day basis that really just wear you into the ground because you can delegate some of those responsibilities to other people underneath you. What would it take now to get you to go work for a team? What, what level would you have to be offered? Oh, gosh, yeah, I'd have to be, I mean, somewhere pretty high up. I mean, you know, at this point, I don't think there's anything that would make me go there other than just a huge, substantial amount of money, right? Like, I'm very content. I like working with you. I like doing my Bleacher Report thing. I love being the balance of being a dad and a husband and being around that. So I really don't want to get involved. But if I did get involved, yes. I mean, not to say i got to be like the GM or the head of pro personnel, but I'd like to be at least maybe like the next guy down or something like that, at least in the big meeting room when big decisions are being made. See, and I wouldn't even want to do that. And, and not that I have the qualifications you do because I didn't play at that level. I haven't worked at that level. But I'm sure there's something I could do at this point after 18 years of of living this every single day, but man, there's something to be, there's something to be said for being your own business. I mean, ultimately, even though you have to work for somebody to be in the media, you are your own business and you can do it as long as you want to do it. And you keep getting better the more you do it. And and shit, there's no wins and losses, right? You don't yeah, have to worry right. about things you can't control. As long as you don't do something completely ridiculous, as long as you don't say the F word 28 times or more on a podcast, I mean, then, <laughs> you know, that, then you're, you're golden and you just keep doing it. Yes, exactly right. And I mean, you, yeah, you're right. You, you said it. I mean, you, you got a great get a, a great job and, and what you do and set up and everything. And, and then the fact that also, look at you, you're down in West Virginia, like you said, calling your own shots. You don't have to, you know, move to seven different cities to climb the ladder of the media empire, whatever it may be. Uh, it's, it's a grueling job, that NFL job. And, you know, of course, you know, I have many friends that are in it. And man, there was a lot of tough weeks, tough months, tough times that I've been on the phones with my friends just kind of hearing them out and trying to be, you know, somewhat of a words of wisdom because it, it weighs on you. Just the pressure, the coming up with schemes, dealing with different personalities in the locker room, dealing with the media, dealing with an owner, dealing with a head coach, uh, all those things really can, can weigh on you when you're working on an NFL organization. 
Here's another question that came in from the PFTPM posse. What's the most effed up thing you have seen or experienced in a locker room, and what's your best locker room story? Okay. All right. So I think – I, I got a few good ones. Is this a tough one? No, this is a tough one. I, I, to, I told you a little bit. I mean, my most famous story ever would be what I told you a little bit at the end of the show today. Um, in the, I'm John Gruden. I get drafted by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers the year after they won the Super Bowl. So, of course, they don't need me to be good again. I am just a draft pick, and I'm going to be humble and, and try to earn my way onto the football team. But I get drafted. I go to Tampa. I'm down there in a meeting, learning the office. Gruden, I get done with the meeting. Gruden kind of goes, hey, man, make sure you get around and introduce yourself to all the veterans, okay, man? And I was like, <laughs> okay, yeah, I will. All right, sure, great. Your impersonations are better when we're not on TV. Right there, right in front of me is Warren Sapp's locker. I'm like, oh, awesome. I mean, this is the guy I wanted to say hi to. I stick my hand out, and I mean, I'm like three feet from him, and my hand is out, and I'm going to say hello. And before I even get hello out, he goes, get the fuck out of my face. Don't even fucking talk to me until you've played a game. We don't need you around here. We're winning championships. <laughs> and that, so that was my welcome to the NFL moment. And, of course, he rookie hazed me from there on out. I always had to have a can of skull on me from all points uh, going forward where, I mean, meetings on the road for away games, whatever it was, I had a can of wintergreen skull. I had to carry his bags to the room, whether it was training camp or away games. Uh, but in the end, Sabre, really took care of me and he was really good to me uh, I know he doesn't have the best reputation with everybody in the world but he really treated me great uh, and then I'll say this there was a fight in the locker room Mike this one was a good one and these are two players you'll, you'll know Wesley Woodyard right middle linebacker of the Tennessee Titans and then it's Jabbar Gaffney you remember Jabbar Gaffney played for the New Florida. England Patriots and Receiver. the Broncos and a few teams yeah Wesley Woodyard used to mess with people in the shower Hold on a second before your mind goes to dirty places. But so we'd walk out of the shower and you're cleaned off and you're starting to dry off and he would run out of the shower and throw soap on you. So you had to go back in there and shower off again, right? Kind of like a prank. Goes on in locker rooms. He did it to Jabbar Gaffney once. Jabbar let it go. He did it again a few days later. Jabbar Gaffney said, hey, man, next time you do that, we're fighting. I'm just telling you, we're going to fight. So about two weeks later, Wesley Woodyard did it again. I guess he didn't think anything would go down. Jabbar Gaffney, I mean, didn't blink an eye, didn't turn around, say anything to Wesley Woodyard. The soap is on his back. He just got dressed and walked out of the locker room. He had sweatpants on and a sweatshirt, and everyone's like, man, what's he doing? What's going on? He comes back in a few minutes later. Wesley Woodyard's drying off, and Jabbar Gaffney has two bowls of boiling hot soup, and he poured it on top of Wesley Woodyard's head. Holy and shit! Wesley Woodyard, of course, yelled and got up. Jabbar Gaffney punched him, and it became a big brawl in the middle of the locker room. But that was pretty exciting. I, did, did the soup burn him? And like, not bad. Like, it, it burned him, but not anything to where it was, like, you know, threatening his skin. He had a little burn mark, but it wasn't horrible. Uh, but I know that was a little dangerous, right, to, to throw the burning soup on him. What kind of soup was it? I don't even. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I'm just thinking, like, if it's was, alphabet that soup, that is one of the if one it's, moment if it's, I'll never forget in the locker if, room. If it's alphabet soup, it would be funny because he'd have like the letters on his face during the fight. <laughs> it was a red soup for sure. It was definitely red because I remember seeing red drip down Wesley Woodyard's face. Did, did other? I mean, how long did you let it go before before it gets broken up? Yeah, not long. I think both guys got about two or three punches in, then it went to the ground, and then guys started getting in there and bear-hugging them, and that was it. But, yeah, they usually locker room fights don't last more than, like, two or three punches because there's a lot of big guys in the locker room who are willing to get in there and get in the middle and, and kind of stop the fight. My experience with Warren Sapp is he's got a Jekyll and Hyde type of a persona to the point where some people have suggested he's bipolar. And look, I can't diagnose anybody. I don't know. But there are two different Warren Sapps that I've experienced, sure. and you never know which guy you're going to get. Was that the same guy he was when you played with him? I can say that, yes. To, yes, to a degree, certainly. There, there would be times where I'd go, man, Warren is so cool today. This is great. I mean, he's so much fun. 
and then we'd walk out of the facility or whatever, and, you know, a few fans would approach him, and he all of a sudden just turned into some guy that wasn't going to give these people their, any respective time or listen to them or do anything, certainly. So, yeah, I understand that. I have definitely seen him treat people uh, with a little less respect than I would like at times. Um, but but as a whole, I, just as far as treating me and some of the people I know, he, he's been pretty good. Why do you think he'd treat fans like that, though? I know. I don't know either. I, I don't know. I, you know, and again, it's hard to, you know, I, I can speak to it a little bit from my dad. Uh, but, you know, again, when you are a superstar, and my dad wasn't a superstar. My dad was, you know, a star in a big city like New York City. Uh but, it, you know, I do think at times, you know, people forget that these stars and these superstars are human. They're dealing with a lot. Uh, a lot of times professional athletes are dealing with more than even the outside public realizes because they might have – they've come from, you know, nothing a lot of times. I mean, whether that be my dad or other teammates I played for. I mean, my dad came from a farm in Kentucky. He had nothing. Always had family asking him for money, cars, whatever it may be. And I think, you know, a lot of that is also weighing on some of these guys off the field too they're just so much pressure not only to perform but they're supporting so many other people in their life they got so many people had the hands out asking them for more 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 and i think some of the guys kind of internalize it and can treat people bad off of that you ever hear the story about warren sap and the do you see any peas on my plate have you ever heard that story <laughs> i've heard that story Oh, uh, yes. I don't like peas. Do you see any peas? You know why there's no peas on my plate? Because I don't like peas. Then if you hate to bother me, why are you bothering me? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I've heard that. That was, uh, I've heard him spew that to somebody else before in my life. Also, yeah. it's so- shtick. It wasn't spur of the moment. See, I would have been so much more impressed if he thought of it in the moment. And I guess at one point he did. And then when he realized it worked, he decided, I'm taking this city to city. I'm taking this town to town. This is like Jerry Seinfeld's routine. And for anyone out there who hasn't heard the story, let me just summarize it. And Chris, tell me if I'm wrong. He was right. eating dinner and a woman came up to him and said, Mr. Sapp, I hate to bother you, but could I just get an autograph? And he said to her, do you see any peas on my plate? And she was very perplexed and said, well, no, I don't. And, and he said, do you know why? And she said, why? He said, because I hate peas. So if I hate peas and I'm not eating peas and you hate to bother me, why the hell are you bothering me? <laughs> yep, that is, uh, that's Mr. <laughs> Sad. That's what he can be. And yeah. again, you know, a lot of the times, too, I think as people and fans, we got to realize uh, that this is sometimes these personalities that we don't like is what makes them so good on the field, right? It's just, you know, Lawrence Taylor, okay, yeah, he was crazy and wild off the field. You know why? Because he was crazy and wild on the field. And that goes for Warren Sapp or, you know, Odell Beckham Jr., yeah, is he emotional on the field and uh, cares about the game? Yeah, well, he's the same way off the field. You can tell he's emotional, he cares, whatever it may be, but he's certainly got a lot of intensity. So, you know, a lot of the times I think we think that that, like, players can just walk off the lines of the football field and then change into this normal person, and that's just not the case. What makes a lot of the guys in the NFL good between the lines is because they got some personalities that, uh, you know, lend itself to making them good between the lines. Yeah, they're not choir boys. Choir boys aren't going to hit each other in the mouth. Choir boys aren't going to pour boiling hot soup on each other when they're mad at them. I mean, there's an edge that you need to have. And and I know from when my kid played football, you know, one time he, he was scrapping with one of his buddies and the coach was like, oh, you guys can't do it. But I know privately the coach was like, yeah, this is great. I mean, you want that, you yes. want that edge and you worry, you'd rather have the edge. I think as a coach, you'd rather have that edge and worry about controlling it later than not have that edge. Because if you don't have that edge, you can't make that, you can't make that show up. It's yeah, easier right. to have it and no, turn it nobody off. Nobody that can like replicate yeah. that. Yeah, and, and really the teams that I was on, I mean, John Gruden, he would, I know he would say this, Jeff Fisher in Tennessee, they truly believed in that you needed to have a few renegades on the football oh, team. Or Jeff Fisher, a few. You need to have a few non-renegades if you're Jeff <laughs> you're Fisher. Right. Tennessee, we had a whole team of renegades. You're right. You were the uh, only non-renegade. Yeah, there is that because you're, like you said, you're, you're spot on. I mean, it, it, this is a sport that's, uh, it's a lot of pressure 
They demand a lot of you. It's an alpha male sport, and it's cutthroat. And if you're not willing to go out there and put it on the line, uh, then, then, yeah, you need some guys in the locker room that are going to talk some shit, hold people accountable in the locker room when they feel like, you know what, you didn't, hey, hey, fuck you, you didn't work very hard today. Or, hey, you know, you better tackle better this week. You better work on that in practice. Those guys are needed in the locker room. They can hold everybody in check. Do you ever think about how things would have been different for you as a player if you hadn't had the incident with the spleen being removed? I do. I do. Yes. It's probably, you know, something that I'll just, you know, I deal, I deal with a lot. I deal with that on a weekly basis. It goes through my mind and it's, it's obviously, you know, part of one of my life lessons that I got to deal with in life because, uh, yeah, I love football. You know, I grew up with it. I grew up around it. I was obsessed with it my whole life. Uh, it defined me to a degree. And my career was kind of just getting off to a start when I got hurt. And uh, that's where I look at it and just go, yeah, what, what could have been if that didn't happen? I, I'm not saying I would have been a star or anything like that, but I will say that I had the physical ability to be a star or be a big-time player. And, uh, you know, that, that's, that's all you can really ask for. You want the ability to show all your potential. And I feel like from that standpoint, I didn't quite to get to do that. But also, I'm not going to sit here and complain because I've been given a lot of great things in my life. I grew up with a dad that was a starting quarterback of the Giants and got to deal and got to experience a lot of great times in my life growing up. I did get to play in the NFL for eight years, uh, which is a great experience, and not everybody can say that. So I try to keep it in perspective. Are there times I feel cheated and angry? Certainly, yes, my human emotion side does come out with that. But as a whole, I, I can deal with it. And the game where that happened, I mean, it really was a heroic performance. I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. I mean, I remember thinking, what in the hell is this guy doing? I mean, you just kept getting pounded and pounded. It was like 110 degrees on the field that day. It was a September game in Tampa. At some level, did you feel like, and I don't know how much you processed in that moment, but, but did you feel like you had to show that this was your opportunity to show that this just isn't about daddy's boy and laissez-faire upbringing like Steve Young once said, that this was your time to really stand up and show that you could take the shit getting beaten out of you and keep going, and, and this was your opportunity to prove it to everyone? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I, 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 so many things were going through my mind. You know, the year before, I got a chance to be the starter. We went to the playoffs. We lost to the Redskins in a wild card game where we really outplayed them. I played well. The stat line's going to say I threw two interceptions, but it was actually one of the best games I ever played. It's one of the best games I ever graded out in, really. But the interceptions were tip balls at the line of scrimmage, got a little unlucky. So, yeah, I'm going into the 2006 season just going, yeah, this is awesome. It's, you know, it's my time. It's my time to be the franchise quarterback, you know, and we start off with a horrible season. I mean, we, we start off, we're 0-2. We lost to the, the new Steve McNair Ravens, if you can remember. And then we lost to Michael Vick in the uh, unveiling of the read option in the NFL, where the Atlanta Falcons ran for 350-something yards on our Tampa Bay Buccaneers defense because they ran the read option, and nobody had done that in the history of the NFL until that Week 2, 2006 game. So we were 0-2. I had thrown intercept, multiple interceptions in the first two games, and not only was, okay, I'm the starting quarterback and we got to win games, but, you know, I was starting to feel the heat. Like, damn, if I throw more interceptions and we lose, you know, like John Gruden's my head coach. He will bench my ass in four seconds. So, yeah, I was sitting there more or less going, like, I don't see any bones. I certainly at first was not thinking internal organs are bleeding. And I just was like, whatever. I'm not coming out of this fucking game. There's no way. And they kept, you know, the doctors were all over me. Uh, You know, you okay? And I just kept going, yeah, I'm okay. You know, I couldn't figure it out. I thought maybe I had a broken rib that was like puncturing my lung. That's what I was thinking throughout the game because I could not catch my breath. I was uncomfortable in my abdomen the whole time. I took a bunch of big shots. And... I think when I took a few of the big shots, Mike, after it happened, the hematoma broke and the blood just became free-flowing in my abdomen. I was underneath the center going on a hard count to get Julius Peppers and company to jump off sides. We were going to run the ball, and as I was saying the snap count, the curtains were going down, and I blacked out on, my sna- on the snap count. And luckily, 
my left guard jumped off sides because I don't know if I would have been able to handle the, hand the ball off to Cadillac Williams. But I took a knee. I went inside. They put an IV in me. I came back out. I thought I let us on the game-winning drive to win the game. They kicked a 59-yard field goal to beat us. Felt like I needed that on top of uh, while I was dying. But I will say this. I know it's a long story. When I was sitting on the sideline for the last drive watching them get in field goal position, the, my thought went, damn, am I bleeding internally? I mean, because I can barely stand. I couldn't even stand anymore. I was getting to the point where I was white as a ghost and I couldn't even stand there. I walked off the field and threw my helmet down. They took me to the emergency room, and the next thing I knew, they were cutting my uniform off and sticking a catheter down my weenus, and they said, we're going into surgery. Well, that, that's a hell of a way to cap it. The, did, what did Jake DeLome say to you? Didn't he say something to you after the game? Uh, yeah, Jake DeLome, yes. Uh, yeah, you're right. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, Jake DeLome, I have the picture, too, here in my house still, where he ran over to me as I was walking into the tunnel, and the picture, his head is cockeyed while he's shaking my hand because he's looking at me, and he, he says to me in person, he goes, hey, man, are you okay? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, you don't look right, man. You need to go in there and get checked out because he recognized how pale and white I was. And uh, he was spot on because the doctors pushed around on me. I went in there, CAT scanned to the hospital. And as soon as it got down to my pelvis area, they're like, oh, Chris, it's serious. And, of course, uh, you know, uh, the rest was history. They brought my wife in. They weren't sure I was going to make it. They brought her in to say goodbye to me because at that point I had lost nine pints of blood and you only have 14 in your body. Well, I and and look, I, I I don't want to create the impression here that I'm blaming the doctors, but I can't help but wonder whether in today's NFL, I mean, I know they're primarily concerned about head trauma, but I'd right. like to think that in 2018, if something like this happened, somebody would have forcibly removed you from the game before yeah. it got to that point. I'd like to think that would happen. I'd like to think it would have happened in 2006. Yeah, I know, I know. I, I think in today's game, you're right, it probably would happen just with the microscope under these certain situations. Uh, I, I, I will never blame anybody on the medical staff of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Joe Diaco was our head medical doctor for the Buccaneers. He was phenomenal, and we had a great relationship. Before that, after that, uh, I mean, he was like I, almost like you know having like a step-grandfather. I mean, he really was that kind of guy, so I know he cared about me. And he also knew how much I love football, and he could see it in my eyes that there was no way I was coming out of the game. They just weren't going to, you know, they weren't going to pull me out. You know, at that point, I'm 26 years old. I was a starting NFL quarterback. I loved it. This is what I dreamed about my whole life. And, uh, yeah, I was not going to come out. I think he saw that. But I don't know if a player could, uh, yeah, fight through that this day and age with the multiple doctors on the sidelines to figure these kind of things out. Well, you know what would happen, Chris? They'd pull the guy out of the game now because they'd think think it's possibly a head injury if you're, you're right if you're disoriented and stumbling around they're not thinking oh this guy may have internal bleeding they're thinking we better make sure he doesn't have a concussion so you'd get checked out and you'd pass the concussion test then the question is would they let you back in or maybe you wouldn't pass the concussion test maybe that would be the thing that would save a guy now but he's not struggling to pass the test because of a cognitive injury it's because you know he's he's in the process of passing out from loss of blood it, it just really is amazing that that it was allowed to go on that long and it's big of you to not blame anyone but man i'd sure like to think that somebody would have stepped up and said we got to get this guy off the field something's not right here um, yeah I, and i think people wanted to but you know again it, it was a different era it was a different era it was definitely a little more old school it was 12 years ago which is crazy to even think about but yeah it certainly wasn't as sensitive about those type of things back then as it is now all right, there's other questions here. I want to rip through some of these because some of them are really good. Here's one from PFTPM Posse, also a uh, member of the PM. Uh, I'm just going to say Vaughn. There's a lot of eyes in there. I'm just going to say Vaughn. Jerry Rice said it took lots of practice with Steve Young to go from a right-handed quarterback to a left-handed quarterback. How difficult is this really? How difficult is it for them to get used to you throwing a left-handed ball when they're used to a right-handed ball? It, there, there is definitely an adjustment period. That is a real thing, certainly. Um, you know, there's just so few lefty quarterbacks in the world. You know, unlike baseball, where there's so many lefty pitchers, you know, I don't, I don't think as of right now, I don't think there's one lefty quarterback in the NFL anymore. Now that Kellen Moore is out of the league, I think he was the last, last guy. 
Um, but I think what happens is not only receivers are used to seeing the ball come out of, you know, one side of the quarterback's body their whole life, uh, but then the added thing on top of that is, okay, now i got to locate the ball coming out of a different side that I'm just not quite used to, and then the ball is spinning an opposite way. That's what I think really gets receivers more than anything is just the fact that when the ball hits their hands, it's not spinning the same way it used to, and it just feels different when they're trying to grip it and lock it down and tuck it away. And then on the deep ball, of course, as a lefty too, you know, my ball would fall to the left, where a righty's ball, if they threw a deep ball, would fall to the right. And all of that, yes, was always an issue. Whatever team I went on to, Joey Galloway, he was the most obsessed with it, where he was not going to let it like beat him up, the lefty quarterback thing, to, to the point where in the offseason, late February, Joey would come visit me in New Jersey when I'd be up here, up in this area, working out and getting ready to go back to OTAs and all that. He would hang out with me for a week and work out and just catch balls so he felt comfortable once we started back up with the whole lefty ball thing. So it is a real thing, uh, but these are top-level athletes. After a few weeks, they get used to it pretty quick. There is one left-handed quarterback currently in the NFL. You would agree with me on this. Who you know who it? it is. It's Blake Bortles. Blake Bortles. He just hasn't realized it yet. <laughs> that, that would explain many of the Blake problems. Do you, do you, uh, does it bother you that you take so much heat for uh, criticizing him? No, I don't. I, I don't. I don't care. You know, I, I just, you know, again, it was a true, honest evaluation. And it's the, the crappy thing about this business is, you know, sometimes people don't want to hear honesty. And, and, uh, and I know it's not always going to be popular. And, and also, it's also the personal side. Because I've met Blake Bortles a few times. I know he's a great guy. Like, I know that. That's the crappy thing, too. But my job, NBC and Bleacher Report pay me to analyze football. And, yeah, that's a team that's been doing everything they can to hide him on a weekly basis through his whole career. And even this year. And I know that they went to the semifinals in the AFC championship game. Uh, and he did some, some solid things, certainly. But even in the AFC championship game, come on, it's the first team in the history of the what, NFL playoffs that had two timeouts and over 50 seconds to go, and they knelt on the ball to end the first half. You know, so, again, I, maybe he proves me wrong. Hopefully he does. But, yeah, Blake Bortles has throwing the football issues. And that's why I came out with that comment. I, as a pure thrower, he's lower than 70, Mike, and I, I truly believe that. Uh, and, you know, I remember Howard Cosell used to refer to the jockocracy because he complained that former players took care of players, that there was this code, this unwritten rule that you didn't say bad things about a player if you've been a player. And do you ever get that kind of blowback? Like, hey, I can understand it if it's somebody who didn't play, but you were one of us once. Why are you doing this to us? Yeah, I know I don't. I see certain guys at times who, you know, I could tell they've known that I maybe said something negative about them, and I can tell with the way they act. But, you know, again, you know, these are grown-ups. This is, this is NFL football. You're being paid a lot of money. Why are you listening to me anyways? Don't listen to me. Focus on your job. And the other thing is, if you want me to talk well about you, then prove it to me. Do it. Make me talk well about you. You know, that's the thing I would say. You know, I, as a player, I can at least look back at it and go, I never took it personal when anybody criticized my play or anything like that. More, more times or not than when people criticize my play, I sat there and was like, damn, they're right. I need to be better. I mean, I was pretty, pretty shitty last week. Um, so, you know, again, I hope that people can appreciate my honesty. And I'm not afraid to – give anybody their due respect or of course I'm not afraid to say Tom Brady played like crap in a certain week or whatever it may be uh I've I've worked hard at learning this game and I work hard at studying it still and I just try to give my honest takes to people you know we've never had this conversation before I mean we've been working together for almost a year now but we've never had the occasion to really chew the fat the way we are now it's almost like people are eavesdropping on our first phone call but (laughs) You're right. We have only had a few moments where we can really just hang out and just kind of shoot the shit together. This is one of the first times. I can remember when I used to go on Steve Dumig's show on WDAE back before your, your splenectomy. I used to rip you. 
And, and I used to say, this guy sucks, and why are they sticking with him? And I also remember that I went on after that game against the Panthers and after you lost your spleen, and I was very effusive with my praise for how you stayed in there and, and took the beating that you took, and it really opened my eyes. And, 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 that, and I think that's why that still sticks with me. It's a shame that you didn't get to build on that because I think you know that was a moment where you kind of came into your own. And if yeah. you would have been able to play after that, it, it you know that may have been the moment where the 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 switch flipped for good, and uh, you hit a groove and and you never look back. Yeah, I I, I do think about that, and uh, you're right. I do think I earned a lot of people's uh, respect on that day. I guess people that thought maybe I was silver spoonish or whatever it may be. Uh, but yeah, that is the that is my claim to fame. Certainly, it's usually the number one thing people say about. Oh, I, I was watching that game when you played the Carolina Panthers. Um, and yeah, it is. It, it stinks. This is the one thing I'll always be a little regretful about my career is the fact that I just didn't give a chance to kind of show what I got. But the, the thing is that really screwed me, Mike. I couldn't find people to help me get healthy. That's where I really struggled. I took it took me almost about two years to find the right doctor to finally get me back to feeling somewhat the way I did before I got hurt. I, I was almost like I had to relearn how to throw the football. I, I went from being one of the most gifted throwers in the sport to a guy that you know couldn't break a pane of glass from 10 feet away. And uh, it really took me a long time to, to kind of find the right people to give me the answers I needed. Do, do you feel like you ever got back to a point where you could be the guy you were before and by then it was just too late? Yeah, I got. I don't think I ever got back to totally the way I was, but I got back to be good enough to be an NFL starting quarterback and still make plays and do some good things. The problem is I just – you know, I never got the opportunity to really prove myself again, right? And and I think really what more happened than anything is, you know, the perception became the reality where it was just like, oh, Chris, he hasn't been the same since the injury, so I guess he's just not the same, and we'll move on from him. And that's really what kind of happened, you know. I had some good preseason games uh, when I was with the Denver Broncos and Tennessee Titans, but I never got that chance to go out and play a full game or two or three regular season games to put that on film to go, oh, look, I'm pretty good. I can make this happen still. Maybe you should sign me as a backup quarterback and, and I'll get another chance or whatever it may be. But I certainly didn't have like the 100-mile-per-hour fastball that I had before the injury. You know, this may be a stupid question, but without the spleen, did you have any issues being at altitude in Denver? Uh, I did not, you know, and people said that to me. I did not have any issues there, uh, thank God. You know, my, my, I've had to battle my immune system. That's been my number one thing with the spleen because the spleen filters your blood. It's huge for fighting disease, infection, sickness, whatever it may be. And that's where I have to be really careful. I mean, I'm like OCD about, you know, cleanliness, keeping my hands clean. Uh, you know, that's part of the reason you, you see me. You know, I'm a, I'm a fist pounder, right? I always put my fist out because – I'm just like, man, I don't know where your hands have been. I don't want to shake your hand and then accidentally touch my eye and get some sick or whatever it is. So that's the one big adjustment in my life since I lost the spleen. All right, another important question from the PFTPM posse as it relates to the NFL's substance abuse policy. And I saw somewhere that you recently talked on your Bleacher Report podcast about what did you get? You never got suspended, but you ended up having to give up four game checks under the policy? I did exactly right. Yeah, how did that? I, how did so, that? How did that come to be? Because you got you got. Like I said, I played in the NFL for eight seasons, and I was in the drug testing program for six of the seasons. So, um, if there's a litmus test to go, you know, you should stop at this date. This is just an intelligence test. I failed that six out of the eight years in the NFL. Okay. Yeah, I just I I. Well, what did we say? I, I toked the line, uh, as they would say. And um, one time I feel like I failed the drug test because I lost my spleen. Your spleen cleans your blood. It filters it. And I had stopped smoking long, long before the drug test, like six weeks. But it came up positive, I guess, because my blood didn't get cleaned as quickly as it used to. That was a shocker. But, yes, I was in the program for six out of eight years. Uh, and then, yes, when I was in the program once, I – uh, thought I could get away and, you know, oh, they tested me today. I'm going to go home and, you know, take a few hits and I'll be okay. And they came to my door the next day again to get me and I was busted. So I lost four game checks. So that's what people I don't think realize. When you get suspended for substance abuse, 
it's really your third strike that you're being suspended for. Your first strike, you go into the program. Your second strike, you have to give up four game checks, but you can still play. You're just playing for free for four weeks. And then your third strike is, no, you're suspended uh, for four games and you lose the four game checks. So, yes, I got two strikes, and, of course, uh, I realized, wow, I'm being a, quite the big idiot, and I'm going to embarrass myself and my family, and uh, I straightened up from there. So, so if, if your blood isn't being filtered from the, the marijuana metabolites, I, I, essentially your blood's cannabis oil at this point. Right? <laughs> you're right. I mean, you're right. If, if you're if you're looking for uh, you know some extra kicks, I could just you know like slit open my finger, and you might be able to just drink some of my blood. That'll get <laughs> you there. If a vampire ever shows up at your house, he's gonna have oh, a hard time screwed. finding the door. <laughs> okay, so so uh, you were in it six different times. How did you get out of it? No, so you so when you go in it, you're in it for two years. So that's the the other thing. And it's like you're on parole, basically. And I've never been on parole, but this is what people tell me parole is like. Because when you're in the NFL drug testing program, they can test you up to ten times a month. And they can show up at your door at any moment. And you have to call and check in to go. So if I was going to see my family in New Jersey, I had to call the league offices and say, hey, I'm going to be uh, up in New Jersey at this address from this date. And I'll be there if you need me. And, you know, they would always show up. So you were always on notice. And they would call and go, hey, Chris, I'm blah, 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 drug tester. You know, I'm sitting outside your house. You have four hours uh, to, you know, complete this drug test or it counts as a failed test. And, yeah, there was times where I was, like, at the movies with my wife and got the call. And I was like, oh, man, honey, we got to go because I got to go pee in the cup. And, yeah, you know, I'd get home. I'd bring the guy in my house. And in the NFL, of course, they're extremely strict, too. You got to take your shirt off. You got to drop your pants below your knees. And they really watch you uh, very closely pee into that cup to make sure no funny business is going on. Now, wait, do they actually watch from the front side or the back side? Oh, front side. I mean, really front side. And sometimes they, you know, tell you to lift up the horse and carriage, too, just to make sure something else wasn't under there. Well, I, and that was all a product of the Ontario Smith Wizinator, right? That was when they, exactly. they, they tightened up the procedures. Yes, exactly right. When he did that and got caught with the Wizinator, it became no longer like, oh, you can just go to the urinal and turn your back. It became like, no, we're going to sit here and, and watch your junk and sit here and watch the actual urine come out of your junk. I mean, isn't that – I guess you accept it because you have to do it to stay in the NFL, but my God, that feels dehumanizing. Oh, it was horrible. It, it was certainly – yeah, like you said, it was the worst experience you could go through in the NFL, but – you know, again, I knew the rules, and uh, I, I, you know, danced with the devil, and then they came back to, to bite me in the ass. I mean, I can't go if somebody's standing next to me at the urinal. I definitely wouldn't be able to go if somebody was watching and waiting, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. You become desensitized pretty quick, though, because you start to go like, man, I'm so sick of this damn guy in my ass. Here, you know, you just, like, start to just, like, oh, here's the – you come down – I would, like, come downstairs in my robe, like, already naked, like, here you go, and just take it off and pee and be like, get the hell out of my house. Oh my it, it was gosh. torture. So it was, it was three different times then that you failed yes. the, the, the annual test and ended up in the program for a two-year run. Exactly right. Exactly right. Why yes, not one of my proud moments. Test? It's, uh, but again, I, you know, this is. I'm just trying to be honest and give people a true inside look, not only to me, but what goes on in the NFL. And again, you know, I just, I, I just don't care what people think of me. I know who I am in life, and you've seen me enough to know I'm a, I'm a pretty good guy and pretty respectful to all those uh, that I meet. And uh, I'm just trying to. Sh- show people the other side and and look it doesn't I, I don't i'm not judging you at all for smoking i'm just looking at this saying after you've been in it once or twice how do you keep failing the annual test yeah i know because you know what would go on really is you get to that time where you go okay i know that i'm going to be tested like they can start testing me in a month and you know you push the line as far as oh, okay i'll stop on this date 
and then you know you're 23 or 25 years old and you got friends coming out of town you go oh okay I'll do it one more time and that's really what happened to me all three times I just was like oh I'm going to stop here and I stopped and then I had like uh, you know whatever it may be friends or went to a party and I was like oh okay I'll do one quick one I'll be okay and of course I was never okay and I ended up being like the first one on the, the drug testing list and they, they got me well, yep. and, and hopefully one of these days they'll get rid of the policy. I don't see it going away because of the fact that it is fairly easy to beat uh, if you can resist that temptation from the middle of March until April 20 when the window opens and until you have your annual test. After that, you can smoke as much as you want. What percentage of guys do you say in the NFL right now smoke? Yeah, I would go – so I think you have – you have, like, two different types of guys. And, all right, so if there, let's just say there's 100 guys in the NFL. I would say 80 of them smoke marijuana. Now, out of those 80, though, I'm going to say, like, 40 of them are the kind of guys that, like, you know, maybe take a few hits in the whole month, right? Like, oh, it's Friday night and I'm with the guys and one of the guys has a joint, I'll take a hit or two. Or, you know, and then the next month he might find another night where he does that. And then out of those, and then the next 40 guys are guys that I would say they go home on a nightly basis and they smoke weed as soon as they get home after practice. And maybe even some smoke in the morning as they get up. I mean, I certainly was around a few guys like that. So, yeah, you have about 40%, I would say, who are true smokers. Uh, and then like 40 40 other guys who I'd say are just casual from time to time guys. I saw, what was it, Sean Smith recently said before games he'd smoke two blunts driving around in a car to get himself sure. in the right frame of mind. Yeah, yeah, there was, uh, I'm not going to out any people, but I certainly had teammates who smoked weed before games and and felt like they played better. And, and in some of my experiences, I'm not going to lie, I think some of the guys that I played with that I know did it, they were better with it because they were maybe a little too crazy and out of control when they weren't smoking weed, and the weed kind of calmed them down and refocused them. Well, Which is crazy, because I cannot imagine doing that. There's no way I would have ever been able to do anything athletically under the influence of marijuana. Uh, I am a, when I smoke, I am a true, like, oh, I'm a reward smoker. Like, oh, I got everything done in my day, I've worked hard, and now I want to just relax a little bit. That's kind of the way I approach it. And one of your rewards also is the $300 haircut. There's a question from the PFTPM posse. Naughty Mr. Two wants to know how happy does your $300 haircut truly make you? <laughs> the best part about my $300 haircut, okay, it is embarrassing that I pay that much money, and I know it's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, it's, it's a guy, it's John Barrett, okay? He's on the top of Bergdorf Goodman, which is a famous shopping store in New York City. It doesn't so make it any better. It's a high-end place. I got to know him late in my college career uh, because my mom was going there. And, yeah, when I got in the media business and my Bleacher Report office is not far from there, I was like, you know what, I'll start uh, going there again and, you know, doing that. It's awesome. The best thing about it is this. He is, of course, an awesome haircutter, uh, but, man, uh, I enjoy actually watching the girls walk around the salon more than anything. It is, as you can imagine, it's the New York elitiest of elites that are in there, and there is a lot of pretty socialites, models, ex-models walking around. I feel like that's what I pay for, the fact that I'm getting a good haircut, but just the scenery around me uh, is fun. You know, I'm a married guy. I've been married for 14 years. I like to look at the menu. I don't order. I just want to look at the menu from time to time. And how much do you tip on a $300 haircut? Yeah, you don't have to tip anything. That's, that's, that's the one good thing there. Yes, I'm, I'm already being hammered over the head for the haircut. You don't have to tip. All right. Well, I, I look. I, I, I no longer feel guilty for spending thirty for mine. I'm spending ten percent, uh, and, uh, and, and the difference really is negligible. Is. I might have to reevaluate that one. All right. Here's another question from the PFTPM posse: Is Florio really five foot two? I want you to address that one once and for all, so the people can hear how tall I really am. Michael Florio is a. You're a. You're. You're. You were definitely bigger than I was expecting when I met you. I don't know your true measurement, but I'm going to say you're what? I'm going to say you're six foot. I'll take it. I I'm think not, you're six so foot. I'll take if it. you're not, you're 5'11 and a half. You're right in that range. And 
you're what I call a big, like a bigger small guy because you have some characteristics of a big guy. You have square shoulders, long arms, uh, so you look bigger than you actually are even when you walk around. Now, you've got a small brain, but nobody can see that, but everything else is, you know, you're, you're a pretty big dude. No, that's good. They wanted to know if you bullied me because of my size, and you still are much bigger than me. You got to you're like six four, six five. So everybody is short and small next to you. Yes, yes, and I I, uh, I do like to bully you. I just like to throw my right jab at you, and I can't wait because Monday we're going to be together, and I know I'm going to get a few free shots on you. It makes me feel better. It's a better show when I can punch you. Monday and Tuesday. It is fun on Mondays during football season when we do it at the uh, at the studio in Stanford. We're going to be in New York early next week. Have we heard whether or not Dad's going to show up? I have not heard yet, so he was going to try to get it cleared through CBS. He's got to make sure they can they can let him on NBC Sports, but I know he wants to do it, uh, and I just haven't heard from him. He was, he was doing something big time yesterday, filming a commercial or whatever it was. I asked him yesterday morning. I just haven't heard back from him yet. The, uh, the transition your dad made last year from doing games for like 20 years or more to being in the studio, how did he like that at the end of the day? I think he he actually enjoyed uh, the year very much. I, I think he, you know, the one thing about announcing games is, of course, you don't always get to pay attention to the whole league because you have to focus on the matchup of that week. And I think that's what he enjoyed more than anything this year is the fact that he got to just sit back and really study the league as a whole. I think he felt like, okay, I know all 32 teams. I can speak, you know, to all of them a little bit, got a good feel for everything that's going on with all their organizations. I think from that standpoint, he really enjoyed it, the not having to travel uh, and just being able to, you know, speak on different subjects in the pregame show or the halftime show. I think suited him really well. I think he really enjoyed it. I don't think he was happy about the decision at first, certainly, but uh, I think in the end of the day, I think it's the, I think it was the best thing for my father. Well, I, it had to have been hard for him to stay there, right? And and look, they were paying him, so I think that goes a long way toward getting a guy to stick around. But when your role is dramatically changed, and they put you in a spot that you didn't sign up for, that has to take some time to process mentally to get to the point where you're accepting what is a significant blow to the ego. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think all of that, and I just think the way they did it, and you've heard me, I'm disgruntled. I was disgruntled about it because the way they did it, I just don't believe that's the way you treat somebody who was a good, loyal, you know, worker and soldier for your company for 20 years. That's what bothered me about it more than anything. And yeah, the, he still had years left on his contract. They kind of tried to. You know, I think they thought they were going to, like, almost belittle him to where he might quit and just, like, give away the money. And I don't know what they were thinking there. That wasn't going to happen. So uh, he's there. I think he really enjoyed the year. The people he worked with and the pregame halftime show over at CBS are really good people. And, uh, yeah, I think he's in, in a good spot. He gets to be in that studio, you know, with James Brown and Boomer and Nate Burleson and, and Coach Cower. He loves them. He loves talking ball with them. So it suits him. Here's another question from the PFTPM Posse. And the guy who runs that Twitter account, I think, is a, uh, is a smoker. I'm pretty sure he is. I've seen some of the photos he's posted. Do you prefer, and I don't know how to pronounce this, is it Sativa or Sativa? Sativa, yes. I am a total Sativa smoker. When I smoke weed, yes, I uh, prefer Sativa. To Do you know what that is, Sativa and Indica? I have no idea. All I know is it's Sativa and Indica. Those were the two choices. Is that like Coke and Pepsi of weed? Well, a little bit. So, like, indica is the type of weed that's going to give you a body relaxation. It's the one that's going to make you sit on the couch, and you're going to go, man, I can't move. I'm staying here the whole night. Where sativa is more of a what they would call a, like, head high. It's going to maybe, you know, make your mind race and scramble a little bit at first, but you can you can be active. You don't kind of just sit on, you know, you, don't, you, you can get out and be social or go out to dinner or whatever it may be and not be, like, comatose and just sitting there like, you know, a deadbeat, like, oh, where's the chips, honey? Where's the ice cream? So that's the big difference, and I do prefer sativas. Indicas, for whatever reason, when I smoke them, I get like that, 
that Benadryl hangover where the next day I wake up and I still feel like I'm asleep. I can't wake up. So uh, that's why I prefer the sativa. Well, I didn't know that there was a difference. And let me tell you a quick story. My 20th birthday, I was working out in California and a group of guys that I know we went to a party at at an apartment at UC Davis. And uh, it, it must have been Indica because I ended up asleep in a lounge chair next to the pool at the apartment complex for 12 hours. Oh, 12 my hours. gosh. Yeah, that was some, definitely some strong in indica. Without <laughs> <laughs> a doubt. Put you in a coma. I didn't know there was I didn't know there was a better kind. I mean that cuz that's like why why does anybody do this? Right. It's just, you I just, know. You just I, I don't enjoy sleep. that either. Now, I think there are some people in the world who are very high strung and whatever else and I have friends that prefer indica, but it's yeah, it's one that just doesn't doesn't react well with me and yeah, I w- I would think if you were to do it again, you would much rather the the sativa blend. You 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 would be more productive and enjoy your night more. All right, you know what? We could keep going on and on. I've looked at this stopwatch. We've been going for an hour. So I've infringed. Well, let's just do it again sometime. There's plenty of questions they've asked. I'm just going to tell them if they have questions that we didn't answer, just ask them the next time we do it. This is fun, though. It was great to have a chance to talk to you away from, because people don't realize the show that we do, it's so, the two hours that we're on together, the breaks are so short. There's really right. no opportunity to talk. And when we're talking during a break, we're necessarily not paying attention to what's coming next. So it makes the next segment, you know, a lot shittier than it otherwise would have been. So it's impossible <laughs> to have a real conversation. And then on Mondays during the season, I'm heading to the airport. You're heading on Mondays to New York City to Bleacher Report. It's not like we can hang out and right. uh, smoke some indica and or sativa after we finish <laughs> right. the show on a Monday. But we're going to do that soon. You're going to hang out with me. I'm going to peer pressure you, make you do it. Are you coming in July? I don't know yet. Oh, That's, God, I got here a few we go. things I got to work out with Bleacher Report and a family vacation. So... That's the that, that's the pain in the ass in my life right now. Is yeah, we're gonna have our little break with NBC Sports, but it's like gonna be a little period there where Bleacher Report I think is gonna fly me around to do a few little activities with them. So I'm waiting to hear on that first before I can finalize my schedule there. All right, yeah, don't blow us off though. It's an important planning session for the coming year of PFT on NBCSN and all the other. All the other stuff that we do. Chris, thank you. It was fun to talk this way. Hopefully yeah. the folks enjoyed it. I have a feeling they did, and I have a feeling they're going to be demanding that you return soon. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, yeah, man. Anytime, man. You the man, Mike. Have a good weekend. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.